Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 90, Space Exploration on Paper. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we like to investigate some of the practicalities of space exploration, where exciting ideas arise on a daily basis, and some of them even get implemented. In this episode, we'll look at a couple of ideas that haven't been implemented, and who knows if they ever will, but let's see. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How likely is a space way station like Deep Space Nine? Of course, anything is possible, but what's likely is what's economically feasible. In other words, while you could have a deep space station like Deep Space Nine, there has to be a need for it. So, for example, here on Earth, there are no deep Sahara desert bases or deep Congo jungle bases but there are deep Antarctica bases, indeed several of them. It's not that no one's interested in deserts or jungles, it's just that you can go to those places with a tent and a few supplies. But Antarctica is a different proposition, where you pretty much need a building to survive, for even a short stay, due to the cold and the storms. The pragmatic business case for an Antarctica base is that it's worth occupying unclaimed territory that might have untapped resources and even tourism potential. And if you get some science done along the way, then all the better. And so it is with space. There's an assumption that just being there will open up unexpected opportunities. And since you are there, occupying unclaimed territory, why not do some science, which is mostly focused on learning how to live in space and on investigating the opportunities that living in space could bring. But the idea of a way station is a slightly different proposition. Rather than having a base at the extreme edge of accessibility, a way station is positioned at a point that's on the way to somewhere else. It's largely there to provide a temporary rest and refuelling stop for weary travellers. But for that to work... It has to receive supplies, so there has to be a rudimentary space economy happening, where bulk supplies are delivered by big purpose-built tankers, and then the way station doles out those supplies to weary but cashed-up travellers. But also consider that rather than just being refuelling stops, a space way station might be where you change spacecraft. So you launch from Earth on a purpose-built launch vehicle which docks with an orbital space station that has a purpose-built deep spacecraft in dock. That deep spacecraft then takes you to Mars, where you dock with a Mars orbital station, and then hop aboard one of its docked Mars landers for the trip down to the surface. Although, you probably wouldn't just hop aboard. There'd be various safety briefings, some kind of mandatory quarantine period might be required, And you'd also want time to organise all the gear that you'd sent on ahead. A basic principle of spaceflight is that if you want to go fast, you need to keep your mass low. Humans will want to go as fast as possible on deep space journeys, 
to protect both their physical and their mental health. So it makes sense to put all your heavy gear on a slower robotic shuttle that might leave Earth a year before you do. So for all these reasons, it's unlikely you'll immediately hop aboard your Mars landing craft after several months aboard a very utilitarian spacecraft built for speed rather than comfort. It's likely you'll be looking for a bed for the night, along with a shower, a fresh-cooked meal, and maybe even a drink at the bar. This is the business proposition for a Mars orbital way station. After months of sitting in a tin can, a shower, a meal, a drink, and a bed will seem like unspeakable luxury, and having the additional bonus of a view of Mars outside the window will make it priceless, even though it is going to cost you a lot. But whether the Mars way station needs a crew with slim-fit uniforms and wide-ranging personality quirks is another question. More likely, a remote space way station would be run by a lighthouse keeper, a lone human problem solver with a team of robot drones that do most of the work. After all, the radio delay between Earth and Mars of up to 24 minutes would make it impractical to run such a robot crew from Earth. Of course, we don't have such multifunction, semi-autonomous robots today. But then we don't have a queue of cashed-up travellers planning their next trip to Mars, either. So, once again, all of this may become technologically possible, if and when it becomes economically possible. This is the middle bit. So, there is a plan. While it's certainly not cheap, it is at least feasible, but it's probably only economically viable if there's enough spacecraft traffic to keep the onboard crew busy. So it's not likely we'll see this one take off, small astronomy joke there, in the next decade or two. But now, here's a good example of a complex space mission involving noble human endeavour and groundbreaking robotics that never quite got off the ground, but it can still inspire. Dear Cheap Astronomy, are there still plans for a crewed asteroid mission? Well, not really. There's probably still lots of people thinking about such a mission, but there's nothing that's in any respect scheduled, at least for NASA, and as far as we know. The closest NASA got was a mission on paper plan of flying a crewed Orion capsule into lunar orbit, and later depart that orbit on a new trajectory that looped out further into deep space, to enable an asteroid encounter, and then loop back again to the moon, after which the spacecraft would follow a return trajectory back to Earth. The idea of looping out into deep space from the moon has merit, insofar as there's some possibility of limping back to the moon on a return loop in the event of some unexpected calamity or major equipment malfunction. Think Apollo 13. But for that loop idea to work, you can neither land on nor orbit an asteroid, since once you've fired your retro rockets, all the benefits of being on a looping trajectory will be lost. So, the plan, called the Asteroid Retrieval Mission, 
was not to stop at an asteroid, but instead to rendezvous the crewed spacecraft with a robotic mission that had been sent out beforehand. That robotic mission might have bagged an asteroid, literally capturing an 8 metre diameter asteroid in an open bag. And once bagged, a drawstring would be pulled tight, and then the whole thing would be flown back towards the moon using gentle trajectory corrections, remembering that the asteroid would be orbiting the sun anyway, so all you have to do is tweak that solar orbit into the right direction needed for the rendezvous. Trouble is, small bodies of 8 metres in diameter are very unlikely to be spherical, since they won't have enough intrinsic mass to generate the gravity required to form a sphere. And with something that's that small, you won't really know its exact shape until you get quite close. And if it isn't the right shape, it could take a while, not to mention luck, to find another similar-sized body that's within reach of your fuel supply. And, even if you do fortuitously find a roughly spherical object that is around the right size, it's likely to be spinning relative to the spacecraft. So either that spinning will shred the bag that you try and enclose it in, or otherwise if you try and clamp down on it, your spacecraft will adopt that same spin. And if you do decide you are going to clamp down on it, then what's the point of the stupid bag? So instead, Plan B was adopted. And it was actually called Plan B. Whereby a robotic lander with four outstretched legs would visit a large aggregate asteroid and land astride a small boulder, say four metres in diameter, which was fortuitously sitting on the asteroid's surface. Various clamps and screws would then secure the boulder and the lander would lift off again with a piece of asteroid firmly in its grasp. Of course, Plan B also required a fair bit of luck in finding just the right boulder and you'd need pinpoint landing accuracy to land astride something that was just the right size and you couldn't manage that landing remotely given the radio delay with Earth. Furthermore, even if you did find a boulder the right size, you can't be entirely sure it is just a boulder rather than an iceberg with most of its mass hidden beneath the asteroid's surface. And if you don't get lucky the first time, you've got to expend a lot of fuel until you find a boulder that's just right. Anyhow, whether it's plan A or B, or C or D, the idea is to get a piece of asteroid on a trajectory where the crewed Orion spacecraft can rendezvous with it without having to markedly veer off its loop trajectory back to the moon. When they do rendezvous, the two craft dock and an astronaut does a spacewalk to collect lots of samples from the captured asteroid, anything from surface dust to drill cores, all of which are collected into sealed containers. The astronaut then returns to the Orion capsule, the two craft undock, and the Orion returns first to the Moon, and then back to Earth, along with carefully curated samples of an asteroid. The asteroid redirect mission was an idea pending approval around 2013, but it never got up. A key criticism was that it wouldn't contribute any new learning to the longer-term plans of flying a crew to Mars. So, if you have an asteroid mission plan, getting it approved 
Firstly, depends upon your plan having low risk and not too much dependency on luck. And it also has to fit the major objectives of your employer, in this case NASA. But if you've got all those ducks lined up, then it's Ad Asteroid. This is the end bit. So, there you go. A lot more space exploration happens on paper than ever happens in the real world. However, it's often the case that the projects that do get off the ground are built by borrowing and refining ideas from all those grand schemes that never got off the ground. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to refine some ideas, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll explore it on paper for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.